Have you ever wished that you could just start your life over again? Maybe, maybe uh, starting anew with the energy you used to have and the knowledge you have now, <laughs> the wisdom you have now. I've felt that way before. I'm going to share you, with you a story this morning of one gentleman by the name of Marcus Schranker. You may have heard his story before. It appeared by all accounts that Marcus's life was going quite well. Um, at the age of 38, he controlled an impressive slate of businesses. Three major companies, Wealth, Heritage Wealth Management, Inc., Heritage Insurance Services, Inc., and Icon Wealth Management. He was responsible for, for providing financial advice and managing portfolios for his clients, worth many millions of dollars. He collected luxury automobiles, uh, owned two airplanes, lived in a 10,000 square foot house in an upscale neighborhood in Indiana known as Cocktail Cove, where affluent boaters often socialized with their cocktails in hand. And so it seemed from the outside that Marcus had everything going for him. He was doing very well. But what some people didn't know was that his life was actually imploding. You see, Marcus's life was largely a fraud. The people who had trusted him to manage his money didn't know that he was just a slick con man. In fact, he was being charged with fraud by the SEC because of some of the, the fees he'd begun charging for the annuities he was offering his clients. He would convince them to transfer into this particular annuity and then charge them, oh, maybe a $130,000 fee or something like that. Um, and they didn't think that was fair. So there was a couple of lawsuits that came against him. On top of that, it seemed as though some of the money that he had been managing for them, he was actually spending for them. And um, his life was beginning to unravel. He was having an affair with a random woman he met at the airport. In fact, he spent a weekend down in the Florida Keys. And while he was down in the Florida Keys with his mistress, his, the feds knocked on his front door and confiscated computers and records. And when he got home, there, was only, there were only four places set at his table for his wife and three kids. His place was not set. His wife was filing for divorce. And so, Marcus made a plan. He would die and start all over. He took his Harley Davidson motorcycle, put it in the back of his Ford pickup, and drove down to a little town, country town in Alabama. The saddlebags were stuffed with cash and provisions, supplies. He put it in a self-storage facility and said he'd be back to pick it up the next week. Then he went home and got his uh, $2 million Piper Meridian airplane, flew down, filed a flight plan, leaving snowy Indiana on this cold morning, filed a flight plan to Destin, Florida, over Huntsville, Alabama, he radioed to their traffic controllers that he had an emergency. 
With a stressed voice, he radioed that his windshield had imploded, and he was badly cut and couldn't see. He continued describing the situation to the, to the control, controllers, seeming to become more and more incoherent until he cut off his radio communication altogether. The plane continued flying on autopilot while Marcus jumped out the door with a parachute. The defense agencies scrambled F-16 fighters, but what they saw surprised them. There the plane was, flying along just fine. No broken windshield, no one in the cockpit, and an open door. Now, Marcus's plan was that his meridian would fly all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, and following its heading would continue out into sea, it would run out of gas and crash, and they might not even ever find the plane, but they sure would never find him. And he was going to start a brand new life. But things didn't go so well. His plan began unraveling rather quickly when his calculations of fuel flow at that low of an altitude and with the door open and the speed he had left it on didn't work out, and the plane ran out of gas before it reached the Gulf of Mexico. In fact, it landed between two houses, um, narrowly missing um, a number of homes. But the plane, when they, when they found the plane, the windshield hadn't even been broken yet. So they obviously began to realize with an intact windshield, no blood in the plane, that he was up to no good. And then the pieces began to come together. The storage building, the hotel paid with cash, and eventually law enforcement caught up with Marcus in a campground in Florida where he was attempting to commit suicide and end his life. Now we might ask the question, why... Why this kind of a story? It's a bizarre story, a, a story of great intrigue, a story of mystery. But I believe that the Bible actually gives us a much better way to start again. If you want, if you've ever wanted to undo the past, to just, to just die and be able to start all over again, the Bible actually gives us that opportunity. God offers us a the chance to be dead and yet live, to be dead and alive at the same time. If you turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture for today, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter, chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to what? died to sin. Now, this is a first clue that we get in Romans chapter 6 when he's talking about death. He says, how shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? Evidently, the death that he is going to be talking about that we are supposed to experience, the spiritual death, could be described as a death to sin, right? How shall we who died to sin live any longer therein? Or do you not know, verse 3, that as many as of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now we understand that Jesus died, right? That's the, that's the hallmark of our Christian faith and our beliefs. Jesus 
died for you and for me. He suffered the penalty of death, eternal death, that you and I should have to suffer so that we can enjoy the privilege of eternal life, His eternal life, uh, that He gave for us and He bought for us. So we believe that Jesus died, but Paul here is arguing that in just as Jesus died, we as Christians ought to die also. In fact, baptism is far from being a sacramental service in which there's some spiritual merit. It is simply a, an outward expression, a symbolic testimony of an inward experience that is happening in the heart, an inward experience of death and of new life, of death and of resurrection. So Paul's arguing here that baptism, which was resurrected by the, uh, by the prophet John the Baptist and was practiced by Jesus and his followers, baptism is actually a, a reminder of us that we join Jesus in his death and we join Him in His resurrection. Just as He died, we die. Just as He came from the grave, we receive a new life, the resurrection of the Spirit. Continuing on in verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, here's another clue, our old man was crucified. Earlier it said um, that we, we died to sin. Here it says our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin should be done away with, that we might no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now this is a very, very important thought. It's very important for us to recognize that a dead person can't sin. A dead person does not respond to what the devil tempts him with. A dead person doesn't get impatient. A dead person isn't intemperate. A dead person doesn't use bad language. A dead person doesn't lust or envy. A dead person doesn't kill or steal. Here it says that he who is dead is freed from sin. Now if, verse 8, we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also raise, uh, live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, does, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise you also, Paul says now, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I want to just take our Bibles this morning, and I want to go on a short um, discovery through the writings of the Apostle Paul, especially, and I want to see what it is, how can we understand better what it means to be alive, but yet to be dead, to be dead and alive. So, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me now to the, the epistle to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, we're going to look at here today. A familiar passage, perhaps, to many of us. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. When you're there, you can say amen. amen. All right, let's go ahead and read that. Galatians 2 and verse 20, it says, I have been, Paul's saying here, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. So Paul here is saying, look, 
I have experienced what I wrote about there in Romans chapter 6. I've been crucified with Christ. And the life that I'm now living isn't my old life. It's not the same life at all. There's a clean break. There's a, there's a new start. It's a new slate. There's, there's no comparison or connection between the old life and the new. It's a new life, and it's a life in Christ Jesus. It's a completely different, different life altogether. He's become a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How can we have this type of experience? How can we, in 2013, be able to say like the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ, and the life that I'm living isn't my own life. I'm living, Jesus is living in me because I've surrendered to Him. I want that type of an experience. I want to, I want to help us as we unpack these verses this morning. I want us to be practical because I don't know about you, but I want that experience. I want to have the opportunity to say, listen, you I don't have to defend myself and my life anymore because I'm simply living what Jesus has asked me to do. I want to be like that dead man you can kick and he doesn't respond. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't have a temper anymore, right? I want to live that life. Let's, let's look a little further and, and try to understand it more. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24. I want us to see what is crucified when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. What is he talking about? We don't believe that there was any type of a physical crucifixion that Paul's referring to. It's not as though he has to have some sort of a physical death. No, that's not what he's saying at all. There's something else, and the clues are here in Galatians chapter 5. And notice with me verse 20, uh, well, let's start with verse 24, yes. Uh, He says, and those who are Christ's have crucified the what? The flesh with the passions, with its passions and desires, with the affections and lusts, the King James says. Those who are Christ, are Christ have crucified the flesh with its, a passion, with its passions and desires. Now, we have, we have three basic ideas now. We have Paul saying that we are dead to sin, right? We have, we have, we have Paul saying that we are dead to the uh, selfishness, and we have Paul saying we are dead to the flesh or crucify the flesh. What is the works of the flesh? Back up with me now to verse 19. Verse 19 says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he gives quite a list of the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, this is quite a list that Paul says these are the works of the flesh. It's no wonder if those are the works of the flesh, it's no wonder that Paul's arguing that the flesh has to be crucified, right? Let me tell you something, friends. From my own experience, I can tell you that if the flesh is alive, it's going to have its works. Do you understand? You can't be a Christian manifesting the works of the flesh and still think that the flesh is dead. It's either dead or it's not, right? 
Now, the good news is that the Spirit, the works of the Spirit are listed here too. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You see, what Paul's trying to say here is there's a contrast. If we crucify the flesh, we make room for the Spirit to work in our lives, and the fruits of the Spirit will be seen because we have a new life, a life of the Spirit. If we have not crucified the flesh, the works of the flesh are going to be seen in the life. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Now, as we continue unpacking Romans, um, especially when we get to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, Paul spends a fair bit of time discussing the contrast between living after the flesh and living after the Spirit. And there it becomes abundantly clear that it's either one or the other. It can't be both ways. But the good news, friends, is The good news is that God has provided a way that we might live not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that's good news. We don't have to keep living in this old man. We don't have to keep following the dictates of our appetites and passions, our our desires, our lusts. No, we don't have to because God says, the Bible here says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Turn with me now back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want us to just look here at what um, Paul says. Again, gives us an insight into how this works. This isn't something that we just have, it's just not, it's not just something that we do when we come to Christ. You know, if we're, we're saved and, and that's the end of it. No, this is something that happens on a very regular basis, and Paul, the great apostle, affirms that here as an for us in Acts, uh, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 31. He says, I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die, and then what does he say? I die daily. So this isn't something that when we become a Christian, we simply, you know, put on the Christian cloak and, and that's it. We, we're automatically going to have the fruits of the Spirit for the rest of our lives and the flesh will never be seen again. I sometimes wish that were the case. I sometimes wish that we could just be saved, and that would be the end of the story. We'd be ready for translation. We'd be fit for the kingdom. We would never do anything wrong again. Can you imagine how many people would want to be, join this church if we were all, if we were all just perfect? Can you imagine how many of us would be here if you had to be perfect to be here? <laughs> you wouldn't have me as your pastor. I can guarantee that. You see, in reality, when we come to Christ... He gives us the power. He gives us the choice to allow our old man to be crucified. But this is something, it's a beautiful something. I want you to understand how how beautiful it is. God does not, when we give our hearts to Him, remove from us, remove our wills from our minds. You see, He could do that, I suppose. But that, He couldn't be God. He couldn't be the God that He is and do that. It'd be a violation of every principle of his being, of who he is. If you were to say, okay, you chose, you had this decision, you know, maybe it was an emotional song that was being played, maybe, but it doesn't matter. You made your decision. You're a Christian. Your will is now, you're just programmed to do the right thing. Would the love of his followers really be meaningful to him if that's the way it happened? We just became programmed to automatically do the right thing? 
Would that be meaningful? How about if you had a computer that, you know, every morning when you woke up, now it's smartphones, I guess. Maybe your smartphone wakes you up by your bedside and says, good morning, Chester, I love you. Do you think that's going to be as meaningful to me as when my wife wakes up and says, good morning, Chester, I love you? What's the difference between... I won't ask that question. Um, (laughs) The difference is I can program my phone to say I love you. My wife chooses to say, I love you. And God is not interested in a programmed response from us. He wants a relationship with us. And that relationship with us, He wants it to be a constant relationship with us which is dependent upon a constant decision by us. Are you following what I'm saying? And when we make that decision to, to, to love Jesus and to accept Him and His sacrifice for us, it's not the end of our willpower, our choices, or our decisions. It's the beginning. God now continues to empower us, to enable us to daily make that decision, moment by moment, that I am in love with Jesus. His His purpose for my life is going to be my purpose in life. His choice for my day is going to be my willing choice for the day. His desire for my future is going to be my decision for the future. And it's a constant day-by-day surrender of my will to Jesus, not because I have to, but because I want to. We love Him because He first loved us. Oh, friends... Jesus does not in any way want to take away from us the power of choice, the power of our will. In fact, I I, I make the argument that the longer you serve sin, the the weaker your willpower will be. Because the devil doesn't respect your power of choice. Look at drug addiction. Look at addictive substances. I make the argument that anything that is chemically addictive is the devil's plan for you, not God's plan for you. Because it weakens your power of choice. Some people say, well, I can stop, you know, whatever drug that I'm on. I've, I can stop whenever I want. I've done it thousands of times. The problem is, the longer we serve sin, the more weakened our power of choice is. We say, I'm going to change, I'm going to change, I'm going to change. But our willpower is so weak, we cannot change ourselves. We need divine infusion of energy and power. And that is what it means to be resurrected to walk a new life. Let me tell you, that's not human power then that God gives us. It's divine power. We become partakers of the divine nature. Read about it. Um, is it 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4? Uh, these exceeding precious promises whereby we are partakers of the divine nature. You see, God wants to infuse us with that kind of a power, not so that we, our, our will will be overwhelmed and swamped in His will, but so that we can continually choose to stay in that relationship with Him. I tell you, friends, it is a wonderful thing to have the power of God promised to us in our lives. And so Paul says, I die daily because it is a daily experience that we have to enjoy if we want to live with Jesus. It's not a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience at all. I want to share with you from the book Steps to Christ, one of my favorite books, this small um, paragraph, and it includes a prayer that we can pray. And I love this prayer. 
It's something that I've memorized, and I often think, even before I, even before I roll out of bed, I love it when the Holy Spirit brings a prayer like this to my mind. This is what it says in Seps Christ, page 70. Consecrate yourself to God in the morning. Make this your very first work. Let your prayer be, Take me, O Lord, as wholly thine. I lay all my plans at your feet. Use me today in thy service. Abide with me, and let all my work be wrought in thee. This is a daily matter. Each morning, consecrate yourself to God for that day. Surrender all your plans to, to Him to be carried out or given up as His providence shall dictate, indicate. Thus, day by day, you may be giving your life into the hands of God, and thus your life will be more, molded more and more after the life of Christ. So how does it begin? How do we die to self? It's a daily matter. We see that in Paul's writings. And it begins, well, I think it should begin when we begin our day. When we wake up, we make the conscious choice. There's nothing magical about any set of words, but we make the choice to surrender our life, our day, our plans, our choices to Jesus. And we trust that He can take us through that day. We trust that He can make us more than conquerors through Him. And then as things come to us, I believe that when we do that, it doesn't mean there's going to be just easy sailing. What it means is when something comes to us, we can say, we, we can say look, that may have been offensive to me as a person, as my old man, but I'm living for Christ today. You can say whatever you want to say about me. Because the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He's living in me. Right? We can, we can, we can actually have that old man be dead. When we're tempted to... Maybe it's appetite. I remember I had a friend who had a heart attack while he was visiting a mission station in Africa, seven hours away from the nearest hospital. He's very lucky to be alive today. But I remember one thing he told me. He said his doctor told him when he got back, he said, you know, you can do push-ups, but push-aways are the most important. Um, you need to be pushing away from the table a little earlier. That's the best exercise you can have. But that's hard, isn't it? Appetite. Almost everyone struggles with appetite in one form or another. How do you do that? Well, when you have surrendered your life to Christ, you can prayerfully say, Lord, I want to honor you. Give me strength. You see, we could, always, we could talk about all kinds of self-help and, and meditation and all kinds of, you know, strengthen your willpower and these exercises and mental exercises and that type of exercises, but ultimately my, my belief is we need the power of Jesus in our life and it comes when we've made that decision first thing in the morning. And we've lived by that decision throughout our day. You see, um, I find this statement very intriguing. Ellen White wrote in Testimonies, Volume 1, page 131, Why is it so hard to live a self-denying, humble life? 
because professed Christians are not dead to the world. And then this one sentence is sort of sticks in my mind. It is easy living after we're dead. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The struggle, friends, is not to live the Christian life. The struggle is to surrender our hearts to Jesus, our wills to Jesus, to allow the flesh to be crucified. How does that happen? It doesn't happen by us just focusing on the struggle. It happens by us focusing on Jesus. It happens by us coming to the cross, and, and before the cross, we recognize that He died for us, and that whatever we're asked to give up is not a sacrifice for Him. He has something better to offer us in its place. You see, my friends, there is, there's, there's a lot of truth, I believe, in this simple statement. It's easy living after we're dead. The hardest battle that I've ever fought may have been the battle against self, but once self is dead, Jesus can live in our hearts. And we can live His life. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. There's a, there's a fascinating passage here in John chapter 14 and verse 30. Jesus describes His experience, at least at this time in His life, dealing with temptation. Now, you remember Jesus has met severe temptations during His life, as much more severe than our temptations as His nature was more holy than our nature. You see, Jesus met the, for example, the temptation to turn stones into bread. Anybody here ever tempted to turn stones into bread? That's not our typical temptation because we don't have that power. So the, Holy, the devil was tempting Jesus in, in, in a way um, that was compensate or, or relative to his abilities. And so Jesus went through extreme temptations in this life. The devil himself and all of his angels would have done anything to get him to obey them instead of the Father just once. Notice what he says in John chapter 14 and verse 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world... Who's the ruler of this world? That's Satan. The ruler of this world is coming and has nothing in me. Some translations say, finds nothing in me. That is to say that when the devil came to Jesus, there was nothing in Jesus that responded to the devil's temptations. That's pretty amazing. The devil could not find even a single foothold, a single finger hold. He, the devil was looking for anything that could get Jesus, and nothing. Isn't that amazing? Why or how did Jesus have that experience? I want that kind of experience where nothing the devil does even awakens or tempts that old man to be awakened. I don't think this is talking about a holy flesh or anything like that, because Jesus, I really don't believe. I believe he's our example. How did Jesus have that experience? He had it because day by day, moment by moment, He stayed so connected with the Father, surrendering His life to the Father's will, that the devil couldn't find anything that was a cultivated weakness, that was a habit that he could exploit. Nothing in Jesus the devil could find to exploit Him. There was nothing in Him that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin, not even by a thought had he yielded to temptation. Christ's humanity was so united with divinity, so fitted for the conflict by the indwelling of the Spirit. And the good news is He came to make us partakers of the divine nature too, so that we might actually have His experience. 
If the old man is dead, friends, he's really dead. That's what I want. That's what I need. I know I can't say the words that Jesus said. The devil doesn't, listen, the devil finds all kinds of ways. My cultivated and inherited tendencies where he can exploit my weaknesses. But I want that experience where I, the old man indeed is dead and the new man is living. It can be our experience as well. Look with me back to Matthew now, and I want to take one just brief look at how not to die to self, how not to die to the flesh or to die to sin. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 16. It's a passage here. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Who was he talking about? He was talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. The Jews were very, comp, uh, um, very familiar with their lifestyle and with their religious practices. Notice with me in verse uh, 16, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16. It says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, what is fasting? Abstaining from food. There's different types of fasts. Some people fast from food. Some people fast from you know, entertainment. Some people fast from television or whatever. There's all different fasts. But the whole idea of a fast is to, in some ways, put our appetites, our desires, our habits in check, right? Um, and this is what it says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. This is what was going on. The religious leaders, the spiritual people, the church leaders in Jesus' day, they wanted everybody to know when they were fasting, and so when they fasted, they went around with a very long face. They looked really, really hungry. The hungrier you looked, you see, the more people would realize your fasting was serious fasting. And if you're really seriously fasting, then you must be really seriously holy. So everyone wants to be seen as really holy. So everyone looks really hungry. <laughs> Long faces. Jesus says they're doing it to be seen of men. Has, uh, uh, wait a minute. Has their self really died? Isn't this whole desire for pride, isn't that sort of the old man? To be seen of men, isn't that the old man? So they thought they were dying to self by fasting. But there was nothing miraculous about this crucifixion. There was nothing miraculous about their death. In fact, self was very much still alive. And Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. What's their reward? They, they've gotten attention. They've been seen of men. That's all the reward they're getting. Because my Father in heaven doesn't reward that type of behavior. Don't be like the Pharisees and fast with long faces. You see, death without miraculous life is miserable. And I'll be honest with you. Can I be honest this morning? Sometimes I think we as Christians are a little bit like the Pharisees. At least a little bit. We read these passages in the Bible about death. Well, I need to die to self. 
I need to be more self-sacrificing. I need to be more unselfish. I need to not be doing, you know, this. I need to not be doing that. And we have a whole checklist of things that we're not doing and not doing and not doing. And for sure, we're not very happy about it. You know what I'm talking about? We're not very happy. Because in that kind of a life, the Pharisee's life, the Pharisee's death, there's only attempted death. There's no new life. You understand? It's not like if I'm crucified with Christ, that's a miracle that takes place. Where, where I choose to give my heart to Jesus, and when Jesus takes my heart, He cleanses it of the old man, and He, he gives new life and new power in my life. But, but if I try to do it on my own, I'm going to be going around with a long face. I'm going to be unhappy. I'm going to be just trying to, to kill myself, stab myself to death with a rubber band. You know? You can't kill the old man with a rubber band. You need the cross of Christ. You need the power of Jesus. If, if the death that's not a miracle is miserable. It's like self-induced death is more like self-flagellation, trying to beat ourselves into submission, trying to, trying to prove to everyone around us that we're holy because we're so unhappy. We're dead. And I want to I just emphasize this this morning that the good news of the gospel is life, not death. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news is not, you know, we could go down to Daltfield Whitfield Cemetery here, Dalton Whitfield, whatever it is, the, the big cemetery. I live not too far from it, right over the hill from the church here. Big, big cemetery. We could drive through that cemetery and look at all of those graves, and we could say, what a wonderful church. Nobody here takes God's name in vain. Nobody here, well, they're all resting on the Sabbath day, you know. Nobody here is murdering or killing or stealing. They're all such wonderful Christians. But is that what Christian life is about? Is it all about death? No, it's about living. And Peter, I think it is, it says, listen, don't just stop stealing. Start working with your hands so you can give. Don't just stop cursing, but fill your mouth with blessings. Sometimes we, we, we fall into this trap, I think the, dev, the Pharisees were in that trap, of thinking that the Christian life is all about death, if I can just stop doing things. When Jesus wants to give us life, new life, more abundant life, and eternal life, that's what Jesus wants for us. I want you to turn in your Bibles back to Romans chapter 6, our passage for this morning. And I want us to look here at, at how this is emphasized throughout Romans chapter 6. We're going to start in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. I want you to see that if we only read part of these verses, we could come to that wrong conclusion and we could live a miserable life like the Pharisees. But that's not what Romans is teaching us, what Paul's trying to get across. Romans chapter 6, we begin with verse 4. And Paul says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Do we stop reading there? No, we say, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk, should walk in newness of life. That's the good news. Yes, we're buried, but don't stop reading there. The resurrection happened. Jesus is alive. 
And He wants to live in our hearts and our lives and infuse His divine power into our daily living. Verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Verse 8, now, if we, be die, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. Verse 11, uh, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 22, it says, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, aren't you glad there are second halves to those verses? Aren't you glad that God is a God who is alive and wants us to be alive? You see, when the old man is dead, we have fruits in our lives. Read verse 22 again. There's going to be fruits of holiness in our lives. The fruits of the Spirit will be seen in our lives. That is a wonderful promise, a wonderful promise indeed, that the fruits of the Spirit, and what were those fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, meekness, temperance. Those are the fruits of the Spirit that will be seen in our lives when we're alive. Oh, friends, what a wonderful Savior we have. We should be, Christians should be, the happiest people in Dalton. We should have perpetual smiles on our faces, no matter what's happening around us, because our life is hidden in Christ, and He's given us new life, eternal life. You can kill me if you want. You can't take that away from me. I can go bankrupt, but you can't take that away from me. We can have trials and troubles and tribulations, friends, but we've surrendered our life to Jesus. And the life we now live, we live by faith in Him. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, we already read it. We're crucified with Christ as we spend time at the cross, surrendering to His love, surrendering to His grace, surrendering to His will for our lives. But not only do we die with Christ, are we crucified with Christ, but we also are raised to walk in newness of life. Life following the Spirit instead of following the flesh. Life filled with the fruits of the Spirit instead of the fruits of the flesh. Oh, for the experience of being dead and yet alive. That's what I want. I want to be dead, the old man, and yet alive. I want to escape that old life and live a life with Jesus. Marcus Schranker didn't know how easy it could be to start anew. Leave that old life behind and to have a new start. Are you thankful for Jesus today? Are you thankful that He invites you and me to live that new life with Him? We can't do it on our own, right? We can't die on our own. The old man won't die. He's not, he just has nine lives. You can try. I've tried. There's no way to be crucified except with Christ. 
That old man just doesn't die. It's miserable trying. And you know what? We can't be truly alive and have the fruits of the Spirit without Christ either. I think sometimes we try that too. Well, I'll just pretend I'm happy. <laughs> I'll just pretend I have patience. What we need is a miracle. What I need is a miracle. And I'm going to ask Jesus once again to give me that a miracle in my life. How about you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we just thank you that you've given us a chance to start anew. That we don't have to be slave to the old life we've always lived. Lord, but that with you on the cross, through the miracle of your grace, we can die to our old life and be raised as you are raised by the power of God, by the resurrection power, to walk a new li a life, a newness of life. Lord, we need that experience. I need that experience. I just want to pray again today, Lord. I've already prayed this prayer, but I want to pray it again. You'll take my life. You'll take my day, take my afternoon. I don't know what it's going to bring. I don't know what tomorrow brings, but Lord, I know that I can trust your hand. Help me to stay surrendered to your will, to your word, to how you would want me to live. And when trials come, help, them to, help me to see that, that it's not about me anymore, it's about you. Let Jesus be seen living in my life, in the life of each one here today. As we leave here, Lord, I pray that each one of us might experience what it means to be dead and alive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.